The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. And I can actually say today, live from Bakersfield. <laughs> hey, that's, that resonates. I like it. I'm here at the location of our new campus in Kern County in California, and we did a we actually did faculty orientation last night. It was very exciting, so so cool to get a new campus up and running. Excellent, excellent. And uh, I'm uh, seated as always in the San Luis Obispo campus, and I recently participated in the jurisprudence course, and that was nice to get students in, getting that. Uh, exposure to the law early. I think it's great that we have that program so they can get some early uh, experiences and meet the professors before they start in earnest in the fall. Well, great. I appreciate you doing that. And I'll be teaching that the last session of that course in a couple weeks. So we'll, oh, we'll, you get to you get to bookend it, right? <laughs> you you get to set the stage, and I have to bring it home. So I hope All hopefully right. you haven't set the bar too high for me. All right. Good. Good. <laughs> So, Mitch, uh, you know, we found a way to bring back a topic that we've uh, handled before, discussed before, and that's unmanned aircraft systems. Oh, go ahead, say it, Stephen. Drones. I know, I will, but I like saying <laughs> it uh, using a more formal term first. Uh, of course, it is drones. We're going to get into that topic because it is in the news now. There's recreational use of drones and industry use of drones, and we've got some laws to talk about and some liability issues that I think we need to revisit. And that will be our topic for today. But before we get to it, you wanted to do a little bit of recapping because some of our past topics have found their way front and center back into the news. Well, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, but our, our regular listeners will remember that we've done an entire show on the emoluments clause, the issue of whether the president can receive payments from foreign governments, and that is absolutely back front and center in the news this week. Uh, There are three lawsuits pending. One, a group of hotels that have sued the president, the current President Trump, uh, under the, the concept that his hotels are getting preferential treatment 
uh, to other hotels. It's interesting the that case is going to hinge on the issue of standing, something you've talked about many times about whether they actually have the basis to sue under a constitutional law. Uh, I think that will, many lawyers think that that's a difficult case to make on standing in that that one. The second one is two states have now brought a a case uh, that they're, uh, that that they're disadvantaged um, and that their costs associated with violation of the emoluments caused by the president. So you go from a private industry bringing a lawsuit to a state, and that that starts to move up the ladder a bit, and is very interesting. And and just this week, 195 congressional leaders brought suit under the emoluments clause that the president is not giving them enough information about his foreign business interests to allow them to do their constitutional duty of evaluating whether or not he has violated it. That one probably has, as we would say, the best legs of anything because that does appear to be a group that has standing to bring a lawsuit against the president. Yeah, you know, Mitch, as you recite those three potential actions, the uh, there's dramatic differences between the standing component and and the standing issue relates to the issue of whether or not there's been a a valid claim or a legitimate claim by an aggrieved party that can establish a harm. And I think those three examples, there may even be more than three actually, uh, will give uh, us an opportunity to look at the vast differences in the way that standing is uh, established. So that's going to be interesting to follow. And then a second issue, the Ninth Circuit has again handed down its decision to continue the injunction against what the president now clearly labels his travel ban. And so the the next step for that lawsuit will be the Supreme Court. So the court, as we've talked about many times, the court is not required to take a case. So it's not that the next step will necessarily be the court hearing this case. It will be the court considering whether or not it will take this case. If it chooses not to take the case, the, the decision of the, the Ninth Circuit Appellate Court stands. If it does take the case, then we will get a, the Supreme Court weighing in on the, the constitutionality of the travel ban. So the third third item, and I'd like to I'd like you to help us a little one a bit on this one, Stephen. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions attended a Senate committee hearing. He testified under oath this week, and I thought as a witness he did a really excellent job. Uh, he just came back and said, in response to things that former FBI Director James Comey. Uh, Attorney General Sessions said his recollection of the one set of conversations were that he didn't say it and he didn't do it, period, end of story. And so now you have Comey saying one thing and Attorney General saying the other thing. And what I thought you could help us with, Stephen, is that that seems like an impasse and everybody would shrug their shoulders and go, oh, well, okay, one said one thing, one said the other, therefore we can't have a decision because... There's opposite opinions, but that's not that uncommon in a trial setting, is it? No, it isn't, Mitch, and it's interesting. You know, it kind of goes by the loose term, he said, she said. You know, I often hear it described that way, and it is not uncommon at all for there to be 
cases presented or significant portions of cases that hinge upon two different versions of events as explained by the very witnesses. So when you have a scenario where one witness testifies in one specific manner and the other contradicts that matter, uh, what typically happens is there's a lot of action uh, focused on character and the manner in which the testimony was received. You know, Mitch, I see it play out actually in front of a jury. And there's often some theater involved in trial by jury because you've got jurors who are impaneled and they're actually watching the witnesses as they testify. So we have jury instructions in California that are consistent with many other states that invite jurors to consider the believability of witnesses. And what usually happens, Mitch, is jurors look for outside support Uh, corroboration might be one way of looking at it to see whether or not one witness can be believed or if there's veracity. And when they're polar opposite views, it often really hinges on tiebreaker issues like corroboration. Is there any tangible evidence to support that one witness was being truthful, whereas the other one may have been a little dubious or questionable? So you're right, not uncommon at all. And uh, it's really just about a quest for looking for outside support. Well, I guess we all are in the in the position of being the jury on that one. And so I think that helps us think about what how should we try to to resolve this tie break in in our mind. So we'll we'll have to keep posted. That that issue is not going away nor will the Ninth Circuit. Uh, let me ask you about one other thing. I I, I I listened to the testimony of the Attorney General and I thought there was a fascinating moment when you literally had the Attorney General of the United States in a conversation with the former Attorney General of the state of California, now Senator Kamala Harris, and she asked him when about his about the Attorney General's claim that he could not discuss any conversations that he had directly with the President of the United States. And many people said, aha, here comes the, the claim of executive privilege. And he informed, correctly in my mind, that no, he was not exerting, exerting executive privilege. That's limited to the President himself. But what he was exerting was a long-standing policy of the Department of Justice to never publicly talk about conversations directly with the President of the United States. And as an attorney, Senator Harris said, General, did you bring a copy of that policy for us to review? And he said, no. She said, well, did you actually review the written policy before you came here to testify about it? And I was quite surprised. He said, no. And she said, well, how do you know such a policy exists? He said, well, I've talked to other people who've been around the Department of Justice for many years, and they've just said that's the policy. And I thought that was a fascinating moment that brought out many of the things you and I talk about this on this program every week, that the specific rules and laws matter, and that many times these types of decisions come down to you know, two lawyers reading, and sometimes a judge and a jury, reading the actual details, the specific language, commas and periods of a rule, and then making the decision. And I would have to say, I thought as a lawyer, she did a far better job of bringing that out. And I was a bit disappointed in his 
failure to do so. Yeah, you know, Mitch, I, I had it uh, streamed for a little while. I was listening to the hearings for a little while, but did not uh, actually hear that exchange. I think we were all looking for uh, some kind of privilege to be asserted. You're right to uh, snuff out executive privilege as an invalid assertion because it wouldn't apply in that scenario. And, you know, the site to a policy uh, sounds as if there should be some kind of uh, an iteration of the policy. And I think that's where you were he- headed. And that's probably where uh, Senator Harris was headed also because uh, she was probably probing on the issue of whether such a document exists. So it it appears certainly the way you're casting it that it may have been a little bit of a aha moment. Uh, if something like that played out in front of a jury, um, I think jurors would wonder about whether or not such policy exists. So I think there might have been a little bit of an exposure there, the way you're explaining it. Yeah, and we'll see, as I mentioned in the in the beginning, we haven't seen the end of any of this. Obviously, the special counsel, Roger Mueller, Robert Mueller, will uh, take this forward. It'd be one of the things he's looking at as well. So That's right. we, we will have a chance, all of us will have a chance to, to hear more, much more about this as we go forward. That's right. Well, that was a good loop back, Mitch. We went back and visited some old topics, but I hear some sounds up in the in, <laughs> in, in the uh, in the sky, and I'm wondering if maybe those were drones. Could could be them. Could be cameras watching you, Steve. I am close to the airport, you know. <laughs> well, that bring what a perfect segue in. We talked about drones. We've talked about drones a number of times, but we were very excited when. The new rules were published by the FAA that the Federal uh, Aeronautic FAA Federal Aviation Aviation Authority. There you go. Thanks for the help. From now on, <laughs> you can call it the FAA. The FAA. Okay. Uh, that they issued rules for commercial use of drones, but they also issued rules and regulations on non-commercial, and many times that's thought of as hobbyists people who are just using drones for fun. And quite to my surprise, this past month, the, uh, the, an appellate court reviewed a lawsuit brought by an individual hobbyist who said that those non-commercial use rules, the hobbyist rules, actually violated a prior federal law and exceeded the authority of the FAA, and the appellate court ruled in favor of the hobbyist. So those non-commercial hobbyist rules, uh, they, they, the FAA has not withdrawn them, but they are now essentially on hold. I think, yeah, I think they're going to need to go back to the drawing board and, and look at how to craft new rules. I think that's right. And we'll, we'll go into, when we come back after the break, uh, we'll go into a little more detail why they thought those rules were exceeded, exceeded the law. Yeah, let's do that and then talk about the difference between the recreational use and the commercial use, Mitch, because I think it's going to be the recreational use that probably causes most of the challenges in the law. Uh, so when we get back from this break, we'll continue our discussion on unmanned aircraft systems, also known as drones. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We'll be right back after this short break. 
College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about unmanned aircraft systems, which is a really wordy phrase. We're really talking about drones, aren't we, Mitch? We are. And and as an aircraft, but I'm, I'm glad you said it, you know, because I was giving you grief about using the, the formal term. But the word aircraft in that term ends up being very important. Again, we've talked about this so many times that specific words matter when it comes to the law. And in this case, there was, as we talked about before the break, a hobbyist, uh, a non-commercial user of drones, challenged the FAA's right to issue the new rules and to force hobbyists to register with the FAA. 
And and Stephen, it turns out that in in 2012, there was a new federal law called the FAA Modernization and Reform Act. And within the law, it said, and I'm quoting, they may not promulgate, which would be a fancy word for issue, any rule or regulation regarding a model aircraft, end of quote. So that was the rule in 2012. Congress didn't change that rule, but the FAA in 2015 issued a registration rule that regulated a model aircraft, in this case an unmanned aircraft, therefore a drone. And the the appellate court just said it doesn't get any simpler than that. The federal law said you shouldn't issue any rules related to model aircraft, and the FAA issued one in 2015, and they just said no. Okay, wait a minute. Let me let me see if I captured it correctly, Mitch. It sounds like uh, when you reference the importance of the term aircraft, that's what gives rise to potential FAA uh, governance, right? Exactly. Exactly. Or, or oversight. And yes. then you just introduced the term model aircraft, which of course I'm wanting a formal definition of that because I'm tend to be formal sometimes. <laughs> I'm just wondering about the reach and the breadth of the FAA and how far they can go. I think that's what we're actually going to talk about, right? They, they may have exceeded their authority. Did I get it right? You got it exactly right. So okay. in 2012, uh, Congress, and it wasn't just on this issue, but they, as they said, the FAA Modernization and Reform Act, and one of many, many things they looked at to attempt to simplify the law were the, the rules they had issued about model aircraft. And and there's some rules that absolutely still apply, that you cannot fly them in an airport zone. All right? Well, that makes logical sense, that you don't want anything in the zone of of an air of a did I say aircraft, but it's it's an airport zone. So that's and, the, the navigable airspace and the and the specific sensitivity of being that close to a actual commercial airport, right? Exactly. And nobody is questioning their not only right, their authority, and their obligation to regulate the safe, navigable airspace. And so model airplanes, drones, balloons, anything you want to, you you just can't do it around an airport because that wouldn't be safe. And there we've talked about in the past, there there have been claims of close calls between drones and commercial aircraft before. So it's a very real threat. So nobody's challenging that. What they were challenging is, does the FAA have the right to require all operators to register? So that's the big brother. Does the government have the right to, to make you tell them that you have and you are operating one of these model aircraft? And the 2012 rule said, no, as long as you don't violate the safety rules around airports and, and several other protected areas, the 2015 rule, so 12 was a federal statute, 15 was a rule, and the court said the rule violates the statute. Simply Okay, so the rule that would force registration? Correct. Violates the statute. That's right. And so the FAA has said, okay, well, back to the drawing board. It's just what you said. They're, they 
They, if you go to their website, you will see that they have right at the beginning, they're encouraging people to still register because they haven't withdrawn the rule yet, but it sounds like they're not going to be able to enforce it, that the court has sent a very real live warning that we're not, we don't think that's an enforceable rule. It violates federal statute. Okay. So there you have it. Now, everyone may say that that's the end of things, but let's, let's use some of the rest of the show to talk about what I think are still very important issues. Number one, commercial use is absolutely still regulated. The FAA has rules posted on their website for commercial users. And that could be, you know, I've talked about this. This could be used in agriculture. This could be used by realtors filming property. This could be by film uh, movie companies, you know, on and on and on. Commercial use that is clearly going to expand and explode as a business. And there are commercial rules that apply to both pilots and the aircraft and the operating. And let me go over those, if I could, just briefly to remind everyone. If you're operating a drone commercially, you got to be at least 16 years old. You have to actually take a basic FAA-approved knowledge test, and you must file with the TSA so that they can check, see if you have any criminal record or other reasons that you shouldn't be issued the license to, to, to operate. The aircraft must be... Uh, less than 55 pounds, and you must register your aircraft. So it must have identifying markings. The operating rules are you must operate at line of sight. You must fly it under 400 feet. You must fly it only during the day. You must fly it below 100 miles an hour. You must yield the right away to manned aircraft. You must not fly over people. And you must not fly it from a moving vehicle. <laughs> okay. okay, so that's a whole lot of must not. Correct. All right, so that sounds like it's <clears throat> pretty rigorous super, uh, oversight. A lot of, a lot of, uh, lot of regulation there. That's exactly right. And if there's any doubt that the FAA is import uh, is is serious about this, one of the first lawsuits against a commercial operator was settled in January of this year and the operator who was operating without the registration as I just listed uh, was fined $200,000 and it was upheld in court. So they did not file it. They were not following the rules and they were fined $200,000. The court upheld that. So there's just the opposite of the non-commercial use for the commercial use, the only case we have currently on record is that the courts are going to enforce the FAA rules for commercial use of drones. Okay. So, Mitch, what? and I know we're going to go into this topic, but let me try to set it up because I see a problem here. And the problem that I'm seeing right away, it may be patently obvious, is that recreational use of drones, in my mind, can pose the same safety hazards as commercial use of drones. And no question about it. So where is the logic in foisting regulation upon commercial drone users or operators and then leaving recreational drone users out there without rules of engagement? 
Aha. So if Michael Cohen was here, then I just set the table. I just set the table. (laughs) You know, he'd be jumping all over this. As many people know, Michael's our frequent co-host and brings the constitutional law aspects into these conversations. He would remind us that the Constitution provides limited protections for corporations and for business interests. Not no protection, but limited protections in comparison to individual rights. And as we've we've actually talked about in prior shows, for example, commercial free speech is given different levels of protection than individual free speech. So there can be limitations on commercial free speech. The government is allowed to regulate your activities as a commercial operator, particularly if it goes to the issues of the health and safety of the general population, where you might be able to do something as an individual, you cannot do it as a commercial operator. So so that's perhaps a little more simply put than, or less elegant than Michael would put it, but that's the basic difference, Stephen. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And I, it was in kind of a softball, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, not to take away from the image in any way, but I, I'm just wondering about the spirit and policy behind it. Yeah. Because, because I, I think what we're going to get into here is that if we looked empirically, and if you look at incidents where there's been problems with drones, uh, I think it's the recreational use or so-called recreational use of the drones that has posed most of the dangers or hazards. That's exactly right. In our final section of the show today, I want to walk through some of those things because you, you have hit the nail right on the head. Just because you don't have to register with the FAA is only going to take one small piece out of the puzzle of your obligations, responsibilities, and potential liability from operating a drone. It hasn't taken negligence off the table, which is your, as you've mentioned, the damage to somebody or someone's property by a drone. It hasn't taken the, the tort of intentional torts, trespass and nuisance and things like that off the table. And it certainly hasn't taken Issues related to product liability, which would be a different side of the corporate uh, responsibility. So every one of those items are still part of the law and give rights and liabilities, even though there's been this removal or or holding pattern for the non-commercial use. We're going to talk about there's still issues very much involved in, in being a responsible operator. Drones can be, and we think of them as a toy, but but the cases point out that drones can put people in physical liability, both by hurting someone or hurting someone's property, and the courts are going to regulate that. They're yeah, Mitch, I didn't, when, when I was inviting the, you to consider the difference between the recreational use oversight and the commercial use oversight, I didn't mean to suggest that uh, there's a complete absence of scrutiny with the recreational use. And I think you're right to point out that there's a host of issues that can arise within the liability type setting for recreational users. No doubt about it. What I was getting at more was that I see uh, an inconsistency in the in the policy when it comes to 
safeguarding commercial airports, for instance, because if there's going to be rules imposed upon commercial users, it seems to me that recreational users should also be prohibited from using drones in and around airspace is where I was going. And I'm not so sure that's a grand problem, but I just thought that consistent rules should be in place. I, I don't disagree with that, Stephen. And I think what we're gonna what we're gonna see here, and, and we've seen it in a couple of other instances when we've discussed issues like this on the show. Uh, the question is, who's got the lo- who's got the authority? And we we talk about we've talked about the three parts of the government. You've got the judiciary, you have the executive, and under the executive are organizations like the FAA, and then you've got the legislative. I mean, that's the fundamental three-legged stool of the American government. And what the court said in this is that the executive in the description of the FAA exceeded its authority, so they have just kicked this can back over to the legislative and said, Congress, you need to modify the 2012 law so that the FAA can do its part of regulating from the executive rulemaking. Okay, got it. So we're coming up on a break. So Mitch, when we come back, let's Uh, expand upon the differences between recreational and commercial use. And as I think you already teased a little bit, some of the liability issues, because there's definitely a lot of uh, information that we can impart and share with our listeners uh, having to do with uh, some of the things that can go wrong with recreational and commercial use, and then some of the laws that might be imposed Uh, For instance, private lawsuits, and as you mentioned, negligence and intentional torts. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. When we come back after this short break, we will continue our discussion on drones. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy La Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, 
and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are continuing our discussion on drones, unmanned aircraft systems. And Mitch, before uh, the break, we were about to talk about some of the liability issues that can arise by virtue of, well, when things go wrong. Right, Mitch? (laughs) Exactly. So, Stephen, you you brought it up, and it's exactly correct there. When it comes to the questions of safe operation or the liability for failing to operate a drone safely, uh, one of the claims could have been that if you failed to register, there was a standard of care that that you, you missed right there. But even without the registration law being in effect, there's really no difference in my mind between a commercial operator and a non-commercial operator when it comes to things such as, let's talk first, negligence. You know, It's a basic tort theory that says there's a duty of care, you've breached it, There's you have to show causation, and then you have to show damages. So you just walk down the ladder of the the classroom model of what is negligence is a duty of care, a breach, causation, and damages. And let's just start with one that I think people might not realize. A minor operating a drone, you know, parents think of it as a toy. They send them out into the front yard to, to operate the drone. And let's say the the uninten- unintentional thing happens, but the minor strikes a pedestrian who's walking down the sidewalk in front of the house and and injures them. And so this is, you know, a child operating a toy, but that doesn't diminish any of the question of duty of care, breach, causation, and damages, does it, Stephen? No, it doesn't at all, Mitch. And, you know, there's kind of, a, I guess, a public service announcement flavor to what you're sharing here and almost a warning that should go out, really. And that is that uh, it's possible that under that scenario, the parent can still be liable uh, for the acts of the child, usually under a negligent supervision kind of a theory. And, you know, you make me think, Mitch, about... Just I, I try to call up the the image of a, a child uh, receiving, as you call it, a toy, and it's out of the box before you can say, you know, uh, before you can count Careful. to three, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's probably up in the air before you can count to six or seven, right? right. 
Right. And uh, there are a host of things that can go wrong, of course. And you just mentioned one that could give rise to somebody being harmed, you know, a third party being harmed by the drone, struck, for instance, by the drone, which would give rise to some intentional torts, one like battery, for instance. You know, it, it, it's just, I think the sky, excuse the pun, the sky is the limit in terms of uh, what what kind of liability theories could, could occur. I mean, what if the drone strikes a, a power pole, a power line, and causes a power outage? Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, there's one, I just read an article that raised the question, and you're going to like this one a lot. Can there be liability for drunk droning? <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, that that is a fascinating issue. So, you know, is it a motorized vehicle? Is it propelled in some way by a motor? Is there an actual driver? Uh, there's a lot of novel issues there for sure. So we're, we're there's no, there's no question we're going to see a proliferation of of lawsuits, and and I say that not because lawyers are going to start generating a bunch of lawsuits because they can. The fact of the matter is, when people are injured by the op, by the actions of someone else, the courtroom is frequently where those are resolved, and very commonly in this kind of the case, it's going to be under the legal theory of negligence that you must have a basic duty of care when you're operating something, and and I would say before people get outraged by this, it, the scenario I gave would be no different than if you just bought a new bicycle for your kid and they mow down somebody in the, in the, on the sidewalk in front of your house and injured them seriously. You would, of course you would expect that person to have a claim against the, the parents for failure to supervise and, a drone's not going to be any different. I just think it extends the range of possible personal and property damage. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. And then, you know, the other the other issue that I, that I think we, we may have touched on this one once before, and that's the privacy realm. You know, invasion of privacy, and that kind of gets us into maybe nuisance, too. Interference with the use and enjoyment is the spirit behind a, a nuisance claim. You know, if there is some kind of a trespass where you invade somebody's property. You're exactly right. So now you've moved from negligence right into the group of intentional torts. And, and you're right. You've gone right down the proper list. You know, there's the question of trespass. You actually can trespass if you're flying too low and you're invading the privacy. Uh, there's nuisance, just the, the noise of a, of a drone and the, the visual uh, concern about having drones buzzing around someone's private property or someone individually is is a possible claim. Assault, battery, those are both. You know, you can. You've talked about that before. People forget that it isn't necessarily striking someone with your hand. It could be striking someone with an instrumentality such as a drone or a car or a bicycle or some other object. Right. That's true, Mitch. And, you know, the other thing uh, that I intended to introduce was the idea of the technology that's on board with drones and, and how that relates to invasion of privacy. Because as we all know, the drones carry high-tech camera equipment, and that can be unduly intrusive, right, and, and give rise to a lot of potential issues. 
And then let's let's talk about that for just a second, because as technology moves into this as a the commercial side, let's shift over. Uh, there's no question the the traditional issues related to product liability are going to come up. Design defect. Uh, let's say you you purchase a drone. It says it has the capacity to carry a payload of a certain weight. You put a very expensive piece of telemetry. It could be a camera. It could be some type of a monitor on there. You're flying it along. The drone fails to sustain the weight, crashes, and damages. That's a classic product liability case. Is it If you're using it for the intended purpose and they've made claims about what it can do, you could have a product liability case for that. Yeah, I think we're scaring the heck out of uh, drone manufacturers, Mitch. <laughs> well, I think you're going to see that there are you know, warnings and instructions. Uh, on one hand, if you're operating this as a toy, you know, my, my guess is most of the warnings are don't do anything, right? <laughs> this is a toy, operate it safely, don't do anything that's damaging, uh, that could damage someone. But for the commercial use, you're going to have a much higher standard. And they're going to have to provide warnings and use limits. And if they fail to do that, there may be liability as well. And then, because if then you get the typical issue of a breach of warranty, right? There's a, they, they may have breached the use warranty of the topic itself. That's right. I, you know, Mitch, I, I, need, I must confess I've never uh, operated a drone, nor have I uh, ever opened the box of a brand new drone, but I, I will say that I did attempt to read some of the disclaimer language on the outside <laughs> of the box. Right. And <laughs> I think you know where I'm going. I don't know what the exact font is that's used <laughs> on it, but my over-the-counter uh, drugstore glasses <laughs> were not powerful enough to read it all. That's, uh, that's the legal... That's the legal microscopic language that they put on those boxes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what I can say is that uh, virtually all hazards are addressed in the disclaimer. You know, That's, there's a lot of do not do this. <laughs> and, and then wrapped up with the omnibus or anything else that could be dangerous or cause injury. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And, you know, Mitch, there were a couple stories and, and, I think we should probably address this one. Uh, there's been some stories where homeowners have uh, taken what I'll call self-help measures to stop drones from entering their homes. That's true. Or there are property sight lines and things like that. There's one very you know, well-covered case where a, a gentleman actually used his shotgun, I believed, in self-help. You got my cue. <laughs> And I, as if I remember correctly, because we talked about that about a year ago or so, if I remember correctly, it was determined that he absolutely did have the right to shoot down the drone, given the state and local laws, because you'd have to, that's not a universal right, so I don't want to send anybody off on any vigilante drone hunting, uh, because state and local laws allowed him to do it, but it turned out he was liable for the damage of the drone. And so on the criminal side, he was not criminally liable for shooting down the drone. But on the civil side, he was liable for the damage he did to it. Yeah, that's right. So he, he did. He, steps. Yeah, so he did have the right to. And the theory there uh, from a legal standpoint was that he was repelling a trespasser or an object that was trespassing on his property. 
He just didn't. He just had to do something other than blast it with a shotgun. Yeah, that was the chick chick boom hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think you're right to point out, Mitch, that it was a jurisdiction where where he was lawfully, you know, in possession of the firearm and all that. That's a very good point. That's right. So yeah. let. So we've been kind of downers on this whole drone stuff, uh, and I don't, I don't want to leave on that note because we've talked about all the things that can go wrong and all the reasons you could get sued and all the liability you might have. But the fact of the matter is that we, everyone should be aware of those liabilities. But what we see, particularly in our region of California, is the opportunity for a safe, creative, productive use of drones, particularly in agriculture, is just extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, it is, Mitch. And I think you're right to shift uh, the, the, the topic to the beneficial uses and end on that high note. There's no doubt about it uh, in the ag and wine industry, uh, the efforts that are undertaken to monitor crops and the telemetry uh, advances, it, it's, it's fascinating. And also law enforcement, too, Mitch. We talked about that before. Uh, life-saving measures, rescue attempts, drones are used to get a better look at somebody in distress. Uh, they're used in law enforcement also. So there's marine a whole- sciences. They're doing some fascinating things with marine science where they can use a drone to monitor endangered wildlife that there just was no way to do this in an alternative. You couldn't get in close. There was one story I thought was just amazing. And obviously, this is not for a non-government, non-science group to do. But they were able to use a drone to hover above whales and capture the spew from their, their blowhole. And that evidently, in that spew, similar to how if we sneezed, uh, they can monitor all types of bacteria and and measure the health of the pod of whales. And there was just there was no way to do that before drones came around. Yeah, that's that's neat. I'm glad we're shifting to the beneficial yeah. use. So so we are we are bullish on drones. I think it would be fair to say. I know we keep saying that you and I don't have one. We've been hinting out there that you know our loyal public, if they wanted to send us a drone, we certainly would enjoy playing with it, not flying it around our studios, but you know we play with it safely. But we'll just keep waiting for that. Maybe that'll happen. All right. And we should probably warn everyone, Mitch, that the chances of our returning to this topic are at least ninety-eight point five percent. I think you're exactly. <laughs> right. All right. Well, Stephen, thanks. Another great show. I want to remind everyone that you can listen to an archive of today's show on wagnerandwinnick.com or go to our channel on the voiceamerica.com business channel to hear a, a replay of today's show or any of our previous shows. And as we remind you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.